Welcome to the Unfair Podcast. Hello, this is Mark Sobel, U.S. Chair OMFIF. Attention is rightly and understandably focused on Ukraine's valiant efforts on the battlefield to defeat Russia and its barbaric invasion. But wars must be financed. It's not just financing military hardware, but it means the state must continue to operate to pay soldiers, pensioners, and provide basic services, etc. With high military spending and depressed activity, if governments resort to printing money, higher hyperinflation results, creating hardship and undermining trust. And then there are reconstruction needs. We cannot lose sight of the economic and financial side. And to discuss this topic today, I'm delighted to be joined again by a friend and colleague, Vladislav Rashkovin, a leading Ukrainian reformer, Ukraine's representative in the IMF since 2017, and formerly deputy governor of the Ukrainian Central Bank, who played a major role in helping clean up Ukraine's banking sector after the Maidan Revolution. Welcome, Vlad. Hi, Mike. Thanks for inviting So last year when we talked, GDP had declined roughly a whopping one-third. The central bank had expanded liquidity significantly. Inflation was rising well into the 20s. The currency had been devalued. So what's the macro data looking like now? First is uh, the time flies. As indeed, we spoke like a year ago. And indeed, the, the macro situation uh, today is definitely much better than it was you know, last uh, last July. And, you know, let's have, again, maybe uh, remind our listeners what we faced that time. So in the second quarter of 2022, the GDP decline wasn't disastrous. It was minus 37%. This was like the first uh, quarter of the of the full-scale war, of the brutal invasion of Russians. Uh, and by far, this was the greatest decline in that year because the next month's already a little bit better. Second, not much financing was coming. You know, after more or less $3.3 billion uh, international support in March when they were started uh, to close the financing needs, uh, the national bank started printing money to support the government. uh, And only in June, uh, the monetary financing was around like 100 billion grivna, which was roughly, you know, the $3 billion. But there were around $4 billion already printed in previous three months. As a result, devaluation, as you mentioned, as a result, inflation. Inflation in June was 22.5% last year and was growing. The end of the year, inflation totally was on the level of 26.6%. And no IMF program on the horizon. EU was in some sort of the standstill after the internal discourse of Germany over the grants versus loans. And probably I should also mention that last July, we were more or less at the second stage of the, of the war. Uh, when Russian troops, uh, they retreated from Kiev, uh, but they regrouped to the east of the country and were heavily attacking us. You know, this was the, 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 the macro picture last year. Today is completely different. And again, starting from the war, we are in our counter-offense. It's not the first counter-offense, and the, the previous ones were also successful. But the budgetary support, total support of last year from donors was around $32 billion dollars. And this is a huge success of the government uh, and also the catalyst role of the of the IMF to help you know Ukraine government to Ukraine government to, to run those negotiations. Due to this international support, the National Bank stopped printing money and already no monetary financing for nine months. As a result, uh, inflation went down, and the latest June figures are the level of 12.8%. 
inflation, which is, I think, similar with some other countries, in, even in Europe, where there is no war, and there is a clear declining uh, trend. Uh, the National Bank International Reserves are on a historical level of $39 billion, and this is despite the war. And spread between the, the official exchange rate and uh, the market rate is really like negligible. It's like a less than a percent. And, you know, yes, uh, the economic and military, um, I would say, uncertainty is still exceptionally high. But we forecast this year, the GDP this year, we forecast on the level of from 1% to 3%. And again, this is despite uh, of the war. And what is more important, uh, that due to the new IMF program approved in March, you know, the, already in March, the government has had uh, some sort of the financial commitments from our uh, international donors, mostly from G7, for the 12 months ahead. And uh, soft commitments for four years for the baseline scenario, for the downside scenario, and as our partners say, beyond. So that for total amount of like, between 115 to $140 billion. So Ministry of Finance started sleeping better <laughs> increasing the time horizon from two weeks to 12 months and four years is super important. So now everybody can focus on financing reconstruction. Well, thank you. So as we both discuss keeping the government functioning, paying the bills, avoiding monetary finance is critical. So that means Ukraine has to mobilize domestic resources, which is not easy during a war. You've already alluded to it, but there's been significant external financing, a lot of that coming from the U.S. and Europe. So maybe you could tell us a little bit more about kind of the external financing that's coming, what's needed, and how the outlook for continued external financing is. Yeah, probably I will, I will look at this, you know, from three angles or, or three parts. You know, the first uh, factor of which allows not only the Ministry of Finance to sleep a little bit better, but also the investors, also in the local domestic market, because you didn't mention that, the local domestic market is a, is a stronger resource for the government to finance their needs. Huh? So not only the, the government to sleep better, but also for investors to, on the local market, while the external markets are closed, to sleep a little bit better. And I see personally three important factors for that. First, I would say is a predictability. So this kind of predictability in the period of exceptional uncertainty. And probably I should start from this IMF monitoring program in December. And again, as we discussed last July, this was even not on the horizon yet, huh? that program. It was not designed. Huh? The, the, the program was, you know, the instrument was developed and the program was designed for Ukraine in autumn. Huh? But starting from that monitoring program, which has paved the way for the IEFF program in March for $15 billion, $15.6 billion, uh, you know, approving this program, the IMF, uh, you know, the, its staff management board put some sort, as you know, some sort of the credibility stamp uh, over the macro framework and the forecast uh, for them, uh, for the economy. So since the external economic agent, they somehow you know, outsource this climate, this uh, surveillance of economic policies uh, and economic situation, you know, as I said, they became a little bit more relaxed because they know that IMF is behind Ukraine. And therefore, also, I mean, on the local level, uh, they were open more to, to finance uh, the government uh, on, the, on the debt market. So this is more like a predictability bringing. Second is uh, 
and we I already started that, and you 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 also raised it. Uh, these assurances with finance, as I said, uh, despite the fact that the financing needs were known on the level of five billion, Ukraine almost never received five billion dollars per month in two thousand twenty two. Only in this only in December there was I think five point four, but as of today we have a. European Union macrofinancial assistance uh, or MFI plus uh, for 18 billion euro for this year. And this is a 1.5 billion euro per month, which brings not only assurance with financing, but also rhythm. Yeah, so every month market knows uh, and Ukrainian government knows there is 1.5 billion euro coming from European Union. And so far, so good, uh, the money is coming. And uh, this week uh, in Kyiv, there was a uh, the EU mission to discuss the new EU-Ukraine facility, which was announced before the London conference, uh, for 50 billion euro for the next four years. So in fact, uh, this is a strong message from European Union that they see Ukraine on a path to European Union, and they want to, uh, to give an opportunity for Ukraine uh, to better prepare economically, institutionally for this uh, for this process, uh, but it is also a part of the 115 billion dollars, uh, which is uh, uh, you know committed by G7 partners uh, as a part of IMF program, which is very much important. And it's also important that this money, you know, both 18 billion and my understanding is the next 50 billion, they are provided on a highly concessional terms of the the loans of 30 plus years. Uh, 10-year grace period, uh, and also interest payments are somehow cross-subsidized by the EU member states. So this is the EU plays a super important anchor for Ukraine today, also financially, not only geopolitically, politically, and future. US is still the biggest financial supporter for Ukraine. And what is more important is not with loans, but with grants. And uh, this is super important. Last year, we got more than $12 billion of uh, budgetary support from U.S. government, mostly starting from June. There was some money before June, but they also came with a rhythm of, you know, $1.5 billion. This year is $1.1 billion per month. And so this year it will be around $10 billion from U.S. And we're clearly waiting for the U.S. budgetary process uh, to get more assurances uh, for, the, for the next year. But not only US, EU, and IMF uh, supported Ukraine. Total budgetary support uh, of Ukraine since the start of the war is at the level of $56 billion, you know, as of today, and, uh, and still counting. So the Canada, Germany, UK, Japan, but also World Bank, EAB, all of them, and, and tens more countries and international institutions, they support uh, Ukraine. And we are very much thankful, the government, myself, but also IMF, you know, I think is thankful for the for the donors uh, to to help this. So this is like assurances uh, that this money is super important. Uh? And also the third element here is something which I would say assurances with policies, because it's not only money, it's not only the macro framework, uh, but IMF program, EU accession program, new Ukrainian new facility, World Bank DPL. All of these are creating the, the frame for economic policies eh? because there are some conditionalities. Eh? IMF clearly has an overarching and catalyst role for other donors, but I hope that one day it will be not IMF, but you, you know, and your accession will play as important role as, as IMF as well. And 
one part of MF program is also to revitalize the domestic market, as I said, uh, and governance is the, the, the financial stability, macro stability, you know, the energy policies, you know, the budgetary policies, uh, but also revitalizing the market. The Ministry of Finance, together with, uh, with a national bank, do a great job. Uh, and uh, they are doing, you know, the, the instruments, designing the new instruments, doing oral interventions, write interesting reports, speak with, uh, with donors and creditors on the conferences, great presentations, uh, and they give the, the comfort for the creditors. As a result, uh, the local bond market uh, and the war bonds uh, are the second most important instrument for the government to attract money today to finance the war economy. I mean, not war, but economy during the war, meaning the social spendings and, and other payments of the government. So this is uh, how I see it. Thanks. Just two observations. I looked at a table that the Ministry of Finance had put out saying that general financing had been about $32 billion through July, early July. And to your point, $8 billion plus came from domestic bond market. You also mentioned that the budgetary process is getting continuing in the U.S. And certainly one should underscore the importance of the U.S. Uh, process providing strong continued support for Ukraine's finances. We do hope for that. And do rely on that. So if all that isn't difficult enough, there's going to be humongous re reconstruction needs. I see estimates all over the map, half a trillion to a trillion. I, some of that, I guess there's immediate reconstruction needs, but that's also difficult to get fully embarked on reconstruction as, because you're still subject to Russia's brutal attacks. Um, how does Ukraine foresee the reconstruction process, the needs and how it should be organized and financed. Again, since last June, July, you know, when we spoke, but also, you know, starting, let's say, from Lugana Conference, uh, which was more or less the same time, Lugana Conference on Reconstruction, you know, Ukraine went a, a very long, and I would say productive path. And let me highlight just a few elements, uh, but it's clear that not all questions are answered, and there are still many questions on, uh, on the table. And it's clear that Reconstruction is a, decade, if not generational task, you know, but again, few elements which Ukraine went through, through steps. First, uh, in Lugano last year, the, the partners agreed on the principles of reconstruction. And while uh, also clarifying the prerequisites, uh, you know, we, we, they agreed that reconstruction should start now, immediately. And indeed, it has started already last year, and it's ongoing. And it's clear that massive decontamination, demining, you know, will be needed in order to, you know, to reconstruct, especially the Southeast. Uh, clearly, the security guarantees are also needed for the massive investments uh, and also war insurance uh, needed for investments. Uh, this dialogue is pretty active uh, and ongoing, including during a recent conference in London, you know, which was, I think, a success for the government. Uh, but again, and uh, everybody agrees uh, that Ukraine, as is one of the principles, the Ukraine after the war should become greener, more energy efficient, more have more transparent government, and will be more digital and inclusive. And all of this uh, is or incorporated already in many elements of the reconstruction plan. First, second, 
World Bank did uh, already or accomplished to completed two rapid uh, damage needs assessment, uh, and their analysis of damages is fact based. They use the new technologies. They work with Kiev School of Economics in Ukraine. They do satellites. They do use drones. Uh, you know, so factually for all the territories which are liberated. Uh, you know, or under Ukrainian control, there is an assessment. Uh, and even there is already assessment after the after Russians blasted the, the Kachovka Dam. So the total damages, uh, and I use the word damage, uh, the total damages I estimated on like a 140 plus billion dollars already. This is after 18 months of the war. And the economic losses, uh, uh, you know, we already discussed with you like a minus, uh, the, the minus 30% decline of the economy last year. The potential GDP loss is much higher. You know, the potential GDP loss due to the reconstruction, due to the infrastructure damages, due to the um, refugees, uh, uh, millions of refugees, millions of internally displaced people, due to the loss of labor productivity, land productivity because of the mines on Ukrainian fields. Uh, all of this together will bring a huge, you know, losses for the potential GDP in the future. But also the World Bank gives an estimation of reconstruction needs, uh, and the, you start mentioning this. So they are, they said about $411 billion. I'm a little bit skeptical on this amount, and I'm not skeptical. I would look at this amount as, as preliminary. I mean, first, because the war is still ongoing, you know, but uh, in our article with Barry Eichengreen last year, you know, we estimated the reconstruction needs will be anyway between 500 billion and 1.1 trillion, depending on the on the length of the war. But also, let's not forget that reconstruction is a is a function of the vision of Ukraine after the war. So I think now this Ukraine European facility will help to build this vision. I mean, what kind, what we want to build, for how many people, for what kind of territory, for what security conditions, et cetera. So therefore, I would say the reconstruction needs will be anyway enormous, and I think not seen before in terms of the amounts, but the, to say about a specific amount is still preliminary. You know, The third element is uh, several coordination platforms have been built. You know, one is important platform is a G7 multi-donor coordination platform, which actually unites all G7, you know, Sherpas for Ukraine, Ukraine reconstruction, and also the, the, the key IFIs in Ukraine. We name it uh, economic Rammstein, so just a similar to the, to the Rammstein on the, on the military, on military side, and it's very helpful, you know, to discuss the budgetary and reconstruction support. Recently in Hiroshima, during the uh, G7 leaders meeting, also the Ukrainian investment platform has been built, and it was enlarged during the London conference. Uh, and this is uh, the platform for, for, for DFIs, so from DFI, like from DFC in US, uh, BI in UK, and JICA in, in, uh, in Japan. So all of them united together, and this is very positive uh, because this is a huge, huge uh, uh, source for the potential support of Ukrainian business and the reconstruction. Fourth element is uh, in Ukraine, uh, the Agency for Restoration has been built, uh, and uh, there is a separate deputy prime minister, which, which was assigned specifically for reconstruction. Institutionally, it's very important. Uh. You know, also important that several instruments for uh, transparency have been built. In US, uh, the inspectors generals were appointed by state, defense, and USAID to control support of Ukraine. 
The U.S. also gives money through the instruments of the World Bank, and Deloitte is auditing those financing. My understanding also PwC plays some role. And also in Ukraine, the, the better version of the digital system for reconstruction has been enrolled. It has a name Dream. And I, uh, this is a people, people behind that are those who are building the Ukrainian public procurement system, Prozora. So I'm sure you will hear more and more about this system in future. It will become a benchmark for other countries as well. In terms of financing, financing so far is the weakest point. So while we build the infrastructure, the financing is the weakest point. We have so far money in allocated in Ukrainian budget around like a $2.5 billion, and they are now spending. And U.S. committed for $2.3 billion. We have several projects with EBRD, EIB, and many bilateral supports. It's very important there are many country national supports on the local domestic level. So the different governments took the, let's say, being, became responsible for some sort of supporting of the cities, and they help the, the local municipalities uh, to run the, the reconstruction on the, on, on the local level. But clearly, we are still very far from the estimations, what you said, uh, like $14.1 billion, which is immediate financing needs estimated by the World Bank in their rapid damage disassessment. Uh, but we work on it. We work to find money for that as well. Great. One financing issue you didn't mention is the controversial question of several hundreds of billions of blocked Russian central bank and oligarch assets. I can imagine what Ukraine's views are on the subject of tapping into those for to help uh, Ukraine's reconstruction. But uh, any comments for us? Yeah, let me, if I may, I comment this as an as individual expert, not as IMF and not as a Ukrainian government representative. So this is more or less my, my, my views. And I see the, the five specific elements linked to that. First, I think we need to embrace everywhere the principle that Russia must pay. Everybody should say everywhere in all the you know podcasts like yours, newspapers, Russia must pay. This first given. Believe me, it's not, not, not obvious everywhere. You know, it's very funny for me. Second is um, how, how to pay. There are many options. One of them is reparations. I mean, another one is a court cases, uh, you know, and Russian assets is one of the sources. It's already in the hands of the of the Western government, so I believe it should be used. Well, still, you know, the court cases should be prepared and also model for reparations also prepared. I'm sure the Russia will lose their war, this war, and therefore they will pay one day in the, also use that as well. So how much? So the third element is how much of this money? And uh, I have not seen any recent comprehensive report. So we're still uh, speaking about 300, 400 billion dollars which have been estimated by different sources. Uh, and uh, it's already clear from what we discussed a little bit earlier that this money will be not enough to cover the Ukrainian needs of uh, you know, 500 to $1, billion, $1 trillion. So clearly, again, other instruments, not only the Russian assets, uh, should be used to pay. So the fourth element is how to use those money. You know, There are many options. Uh, and there is a public debate between different legal schools. Uh, there is a public debate even between economists. Uh, you know, the, some people say you need to, re, to return this money to Russia because, uh, I mean, you need to use the reparations or court cases in the future. Someone said you need to keep it as a hostage. I think uh, uh, keeping it as a hostage is a, is a weak uh, argument, uh, just keeping uh, as a hostage. Uh, but there is also an option, you know, to use it as a collateral, you know, and there is also an option to pay, to, to give this money immediately. 
to Ukraine. What I hear from all these governments, including EU and US, uh, they're a little bit reluctant uh, to go so far, you know, immediately giving this money to Ukraine. And uh, I believe that uh, they need, if they believe there is no legal frame for that, uh, they need to develop it uh, and to use it uh, for the current assets as well. But uh, even within the current framework, which I which I read and I read uh, all the recent reports on these, uh, it can be used at least as a collateral. And as a collateral, for example, there are several options. Uh, one of them is, uh, which is supported by, I think, by Ukrainian government for these, uh, the track in Hague of creation of the register of the claims for reconstruction. The second instrument for this mechanism, uh, there should be a commission. And the third, there should be a fund which should be uh, populated with these either money from, from Russian assets or you know, the money which can be used as uh, Russian assets as a collateral. And uh, this money to be paid versus uh, the claims from Ukrainians who lost their you know, their either business or their real estate and uh, including Ukrainian government uh, for that. This is one of the one of the options how to use it. Uh, I think from justice perspective is the most uh, right approach. From economic perspective, maybe not the, the, the super best approach because, I mean, it's better still to use the bigger amount of money also for national projects uh, rather than to give uh, to millions of people, you know, for, you know, for $5,000. Okay, well, you're being very generous with your time, so let me begin to wrap up, but I would be remiss if I didn't ask uh, one last question. I mean, you know, I know from having worked on post-Soviet matters for quite a while in the 90s, following Ukraine since then, I mean, Ukraine has been characterized by a high level of corruption over the decades of its independence. Uh, Oligarchs have had huge influence. I always felt this was a major impediment to Ukraine becoming westernized and escaping the Russia's orbit. I know that when you were at the central bank, you attacked that. Uh, you were a reformer, but the struggle against corruption is a very tough one. As you've already alluded, the West is going to be very wary of providing continued large budget and other support to Ukraine if its resources are seen as enabling corruption. And you want to join the European, but the EU isn't going to accept Ukraine if it's not vigorously fighting corruption. So is particularly with the impetus of the war, I mean, is Ukraine turning over a new page in its fight against corruption? Yeah, thanks for this question. You know my opinion, I believe we already discussed it once. I strongly believe that uh, the perception that Ukraine is the most corrupted country in Europe uh, is a part of the pretty successful long-time Russian narrative, uh, which they were populating in different capitals. Uh, I don't say that there was no corruption. I say I would say that the highest peak of Ukrainian corruption was uh, somewhere in the end of 2013, uh, and you know the the level of this corruption was one of the major factors uh, of people going outside of. To, to fight against the, the regime of Yanukovych. And uh, Russians could uh, easily use this narrative uh, those years because in all the years before, I would say from 1991 until 2013, uh, they were, or early 2014, uh, they corrupted themselves, Ukrainian government. They corrupted themselves, Ukrainian oligarchs. Uh, this was in different instruments, the, Russia, the, the cheap gas, uh, 
the direct money. There was a you know many different instruments. So they know they knew what they are speaking about, and they could populate. Yeah. So since then, since uh, early 2014, after the revolution of dignity, Ukraine went a long path to decrease the corruption. I'm absolutely sure, you know, there are a lot of evidence of that. It's not only public procurement, it's not only an energy sector, not only financial sector, many, many different elements. I'm not saying we're Sweden today or Denmark, you know, and they, we still have a long path to go. And I fully agree with you that our path uh, on European Union will be a big, very much dependent on our next actions in that element, in that in that sphere, not only corruption, but also rule of law. Uh, and uh, I can finish probably only one word, which I was saying in 2014, uh, when I was just came as a deputy governor, I said, don't judge us on promises, judge us on actions. Well, thank you for that. I think the world will be looking for continued actions. I know that the IMF focused quite heavily in recent years on banking issues and, and the courts and tough sledding, but best of wishes to... Ukraine and tackling uh, corruption. This has been wonderful. You've been very generous with your time. Uh, I think the public will benefit greatly from hearing your thoughts. Uh, so thank you, Vlad Rushkoven. Thank you, Mark. Thank you for listening to the OMFIF podcast.